Hello and welcome to the Sports Law Podcast, where we talk about the companies that are making waves at the busiest intersection of sports technology and entertainment. Today, we're going to be talking about marketing a event with a huge historical background and roots. And to do that, we've got some really, really interesting guests uh, coming on board. But before we get to that, as ever, if you like what you hear, please make sure that you like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on social at Sportsloft HQ. And go to our website, sportsloft.co, to sign up for our newsletter that comes out every Friday with the latest from that aforementioned busy intersection. So to chat today about the success of Cheltenham and horse racing and gambling and a whole host of other topics, we've got three excellent guests uh, joining the podcast. I'd like to welcome Nick Goggins, who is the CEO and founder of Pumpjack DataWorks. Welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, Yanni. Good to be here. Good to, good to be invited back. Uh, you know, we're ready for warm steaks. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. And uh, moving on to the other Sportsloft member, we've got Tom Reed with us, who's the Chief Commercial Officer at Spock. Spock provides virtual commentary studio, which enables commentators to call sports action from anywhere in the world with, a, with an internet connection for allowing multiple different streams, multiple different languages, uh, and all sorts of personalized and localized content. So, Tom, welcome back to the Sports Law Podcast. Thanks for having me, Yanni. Looking forward to the conversation. Awesome. And our industry guest, highly decorated, fabulous wealth of experience, love to welcome Olaf Guldner to the podcast. Olaf is the Chief Marketing Officer at the Jockey Club. And for those of you who don't know what the Jockey Club is, we'll get into that in a second, because it is a venerable and uh, legendary institution. Olaf joined the Jockey Club two years ago, but has 25 years of experience across hospitality, leisure, gaming, sports, retail, and a host of other um, a host of other industries. He's the former CMO of the Goodwood Group, another venerable organization, and I'm sure we we might be touching on the Goodwood Group in a, uh, in a little bit. Uh, and he also spent time at huge brands such as Avis, DHL, and has even done a bit of consulting with Bing Consulting. So Olaf. Welcome to the Sports Love Podcast. Fantastic to have you on board. Yanni, thank you so much. Great to be here and uh, I hardly recognize the introduction. Very flattering. Thank you. <laughs> well, it's all true from what I'm told. So uh, it's definitely good to have you here to talk about it. Well, listen, I alluded to the Jockey Club um, and Goodwood uh, as being venerable institutions and having a history. And, you know, we're going to talk about how we market to that history, but also apply technology and new techniques in order to get into that. But before we do that, why don't you just give us a, a quick 30 to 60 seconds on who you are, what you do day to day, uh, and, and what is the Jockey Club? Perfect. Maybe I'll start with the, uh, with the last question, what's the Jockey Club? Uh, we've been around since 1750. We basically are uh, the biggest commercial operator of, uh, in horse racing in the UK. Uh, operate 15 race courses, so we'll talk about Cheltenham later, but we also operate Aintree, the Grand National, the Derby and Epsom and, and lots of other events. Uh, we have, in parallel to that, we have three other business, which is a, which is all around horse racing, all around um, bloodstock, all around uh, the, the, the estates to actually train the gallops, and then, of course, the estates as a whole. Um, and the wonderful thing about the business, it's very much a purpose-driven business. It's to reinvest all its profit back into the sport. So doesn't it's commercial in its sense, but all profit goes back into the sport, which is great. Uh, and marketing for us is sort of, as you can mention, lots and lots of different income streams and anything that has to do with a way to make money on and around the race courses, whether it's on event or off event, whether it's hospitality, general admission, uh, um, events, all of that is sort of part of our marketing remit, uh, which is very exciting indeed. 
Well, what I'm going to take out of that is 1750 and then uh, challenge our uh, two other guests to try to get close to that in terms of the amount of time that their companies have been in existence. Uh, Tom, starting with you, tell us a little bit more about, um, about Spark and uh, what you guys are up to. So just before that, the I mean, the country that I'm from didn't even have, um, it exists like in 1770 or the first European settlers hadn't been there um, by 1750. So it's... Uh, neither uh, neither nor, had mine. Nor did the country that you're in, nor, nor next country, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so content localization is really the DNA of Spork and everything we do. Mm. We do this by providing remote commentary production solutions for broadcasters, production companies and sports organizations all over the world. Our core product is what we call our virtual commentary studio, which allows commentators to broadcast events from home using only a laptop, home internet connection and microphone. We can then deliver that content with perfectly synchronized audio and video, along with localized graphics package if needed, to wherever it needs to go into linear, OTT, social media or radio. Mm. Uh, there's a number of use cases for our services, but the main use case for Spalk is where our clients want to reach or engage a new audience, so they create a bespoke broadcast feed tailored to that audience, yep. be it multilingual commentary or an alternative English feed or even influencer or a betting specific feed. Awesome. Thank you very much, Tom. Great to have you back. And Nick, other, other than being in a country that wasn't around when uh, the Jockey Club was founded and, uh, and uh, Pump Jack being a relatively nascent company, Give us a little bit about uh, kind of what you're doing day to day and how uh, how the world of data is uh, is developing in the sports industry. Yeah, no, thank you. I think you know from from Pumpjack's perspective, we're really trying to really focus on helping our clients uh, in, in the industry. You know, really move data and make it more active. Uh, you know, so as we've kind of evolved as an industry, I think getting you know our hands on you know where, warehouses or storage and these sorts of things, but. How do we make it move? How do we make uh, new kinds of commercial deals that can, you know, uh, trade data between partners, teams, and leagues, or you know, in the case of jockey, you know, jockey, jockey club and race course and back and forth, uh, but also other partners from streaming to uh, gaming. You mentioned uh, these sorts of things. I think we're at a, an early stage here of really being able to activate these kinds of uh, trades and new values that are then created. Uh, within uh, the data holding as asset itself, uh, and then also commercial activities that can come upon that, whether that is uh, indirect or direct. Uh, the, the indirect is you know, using the data to better personalize or better market or match sponsors with different segments. Uh, I think there's new opportunities as far as bringing you know, some of the traditional half trillion dollar data brokerage business that exists that really hasn't come to the fore in sport entertainment, which holds very unique data sets. Uh, you know, that's kind of an area that we've been really focusing on uh, over the last uh, over the last year and preparing information for that. And of course, what you have to obviously consider in all of this is how, you know, the, the fan consumer is uh, held within that, is getting benefit and uh, obviously you know, protected from all the uh, appropriate international laws around the data protections and all that. Bad, bad so, actors out there. There, there, there always are. Thanks for being on, Nick. Uh, a, lot, a lot to chat about and a lot to unpick there. And what I want to use as the jumping off point, um, Olaf mentioned a bit earlier, is Cheltenham Festival. Um, uh, Cheltenham Festival is one of the cornerstones of uh, British horse racing, uh, world horse racing. 
really, and it, it goes far beyond just the races themselves as well. So uh, there's a lot to talk about there from the data that's being captured, the type of profile of people who are coming to Cheltenham Festival, um, the variety of uh, the variety of activities that take place, the businesses that intersect with it, how you can start localizing the content for different areas, especially with the advent of uh, the opening up of uh, the U.S. market for gambling. So there's just a whole host of things that we can use as jumping off points. Um, but before we get to that, Olaf, for those of our listeners who may not be quite as familiar with, with British horse racing, give us a little bit of a flavor of Cheltenham Festival, what, what it is and kind of the, the, the position that it occupies in the UK sports calendar. So Cheltenham Festival is a four-day event, uh, happened last week. It's, um, it's people call it the pinnacle of jump racing. Some people compare it to the Olympics of jump racing. The fascinating players absolutely love it. My favorite four days of the year. Um, talking about um, tradition again and heritage, um, it will celebrate its 100-year anniversary of the Gold Cup, which is the most famous trophy throughout those four days um, next year. So again, it's also so steeped in tradition, heritage, and it's a very prestigious event and the one that everyone wants to win. Um, to put in perspective size-wise, um, last week we had 240, just over 240,000 people there across four days, so it's a, it's a, it's a pretty big event. Um, and uh, we probably think it's the biggest temporary hospitality facility across all of Europe. Um, it's a massive build that starts in September uh, for um, uh, welcoming visitors then in, in, um, in, uh, in March. Um, top three event probably in the UK uh, based on the number of people coming. Great place. Um, it's it's, it's uh, a, true, uh, a true sort of um, landmark in the calendar and to give an anecdotal bit of um, evidence, my mother-in-law uh, has for the last two or three years made sure that the grandchildren, uh, including my two kids, are always in Oxfordshire where she lives uh, and will put on the Gold Cup and uh, make sure that she watches it with all four of her grandchildren. Uh, she doesn't allow them to gamble on it yet, uh, but no <laughs> doubt that'll be coming uh, down the line. So That's a nice thing. Off. So how tired are you? That was a four-day event. It's obviously a big old build-up. How's how are you feeling? Uh, I'm feeling okay. The only thing that if the voice goes halfway through, you um, you know why. It's a lot of talking, a lot of hosting people. It's sort of everyone comes to mingle and and uh, you end up sort of after four days, you end up losing your voice a little bit. And I sort of talk about anecdotes and bring it to life. I always think recent history actually brings it to life how it's core to the UK at least. It's sort of if you look back at sort of 2020, the festival happened just a few days before the country locked down. Uh, 21, it behind closed doors because of COVID. 22, record numbers, biggest ever because everyone was allowed to enjoy the, the, the renewed freedom. And then 23, it's sort of whatever currently goes on around. Train strikes here in this part of the world. Um, teachers are striking, uh, cost of living crisis. And nevertheless, the sort of the, the beacon of, of jump racing sort of holds, holds strong with 240,000 people coming. So it's... Um, yeah, it's a lovely place. So who are those 240,000 people? Because obviously every day of Cheltenham, every day of those four days is a, is a big day out. People plan, you know, months in advance, plan around it. How does your audience skew? And then we'll get into talking about how you can communicate with them, how you sort of internationalize the event. Yeah, I know it's a really interesting question. So the interesting thing about horse racing in general, but also for the festival is it's sort of, it's a little bit what you make of it. So it's, and it's very distinct mm. segments. So there are some people who just absolutely love the sport, which you will find anywhere in the, in the world in any sporting events. There are quite a few of those. They're, they follow sport day in, day out, and it's sort of their, their mecca, their Olympics. 
Um, you then have some people who use it as a as a what I would call social occasion, whether that's hanging out with your friends, family, work colleagues, hosting, inviting, saying thank you for suppliers or or so forth. Um, there's a bit around dressing up, sort of dressing up for the occasion, a special place to go. Uh, and then last but not seen, they're sort of the big event hunters who like to have be able to talk to themselves, tell themselves, but also tell your friends that they've been there. So um, not necessarily so the Instagram moment, but the, the typical, um, I always think there's only these sporting events, all these sporting events, ours and everyone else's. It feels very, very different to be there live and be able to say, look, I was there when this happened and it just sort of had tingling, I was crying, whatever um, uh, actually happened. And I think that's what humankind still makes different, sort of like um, this stuff only happens once and you can only be there once. If you miss it, it doesn't feel the same. So um, yeah. This and this year was the same. There's sort of two moments that if you're into sport, you will you will always remember for the rest of your life, and it feels different if you watch it, you know, half an hour later, non-life. It just feels special when you when you go through emotions of is she going to win? Yes, no, etc. Yeah. So that's that's those um, those three different groups, and um, in my eyes, the marketing challenge is to actually be accessible to all, but being particularly relevant for these different motivations and be able to identify that and then. Um, talk to them differently, address them differently, mention different aspects of your day at Cheltenham or any sport event based on what you think the reason is where they're coming. Uh, and I think that's the beauty of data and segmentations, relevance and so yeah. forth. And Nick, obviously, Pumpjack is is very focused on exactly what Olaf just described. How do you guys, um, how do you guys approach that? How do you help clients look at this segmentation, look at that um, uh, data flow, and be able to make the best decisions, be able to communicate with those uh, those various audiences in the best way in order to generate um, generate greater returns. Yeah, well, I think you know it, it. It kind of starts with just kind of focusing on okay, you know, just what do we have access to? What data is clean? What what where is kind of the the lay of the land? Um, where and then when you get into your partners because. You know, I think this is the the challenge uh, in 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 sport, right? Is that there's so many third and second parties involved in the event, uh, or the game day, or the match day. Uh, you know, and so there's lots of different technologies that are connecting data. Of let's say I'm Nick the fan, and you know I might be on a mobile app, uh, bought a ticket, I've acquired it. Maybe there's parking. Then I'm on prem, uh, and I'll just do the, the you know the, the game day journey, right? And then you know there's the POS, there's uh, Wi-Fi at the stadium, all those sorts of things. Getting that connected in where that's you know simple to just see what 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 did this user or this user's group kind of do? Um, you know there's there's a lot of steps just to, to, to make that simple and to be able to be seen. Um, now, uh, and in addition to that, I think you know one other component that you kind of do at the same time, which is to look at uh, you know, revenue opportunities. Where are we going to focus, you know, the ROI on the data? Okay, well, that can't just come out of nowhere. We, that has to be kind of prioritized on, you know, uh, and there can be several different kinds of things that can be done with that, right? So are we trying to, you know, increase yields of ticketing or just the prices or increase membership or season ticket holders on, you know, that component, which is kind of where, most people have focused traditionally on trying to get ROI on data systems, but then there's a lot about answering, you know, the who, right? And what information, like, what information do we have to answer the question of the who? 
and what do we need to have? What would our suppliers and sponsors like to know? Is that changing in, you know, what, where, where do we have gaps in that knowledge that, and what's the value of filling that gap so that then we as an organization understand that, yes, there's a cost per acquisition of a new customer, but there's also a cost of acquisition of new knowledge from the existing, you know, almost like the three personas that Olaf just laid out, right? I can know more about my core fans uh, as, well, as much as I can acquire new ones. And then there's always this kind of Venn diagram. So understanding that component. And then finally, I think um, new opportunities in which, <clears throat> and these are all nascent, but how does an organization approach other sponsors? What, let's just say it's a league with a streaming partner and there's teams. So this is something that we're working on with the league, right? Where you know the, the streaming partner would like to understand, for example, um, let's just say it's a team in Dallas. Okay, and so the stream, the streamer would like, no, okay, who has gone to more than three games in live, but is not yet a streaming subscriber, right? So how has that data moved from team to league to the streamer? And then conversely, the flip, the team might want to know, you know, who is streaming that has uh, viewed, you know, three or four away games who has not attended live in our market, right? And just those kinds of things, what's the value of that data trade? How does it happen quickly? Because all boats in that case rise, the streamer, the league, uh, the audience, arguably the fan. And additionally, you could then add, okay, other sponsors would like to maybe understand this knowledge as you're showing the increase in, in that case in the uh, overall engagement, you know, uh, with, with the league and the, the, the content, right? Mm -hmm. um, so those are the different pieces. And uh, Olaf, Taking taking that back to um, you know looking looking what what Nick was just describing sort of over the course of a season and multiple games and sort of different engagement points, you know your challenge is a slightly different one right in that you have major events um, in very separate parts of the country, um, and then in each of those events you have a year long well you know three hundred and sixty one day layoff between the one event and the next event. So how do you look to capitalize on the data that you do collect in order to be able to communicate with those audience? Do you find that people go to multiple different events? How, how much crossover and overlap is there in that, in that audience physically before we start getting to the, to the sort of uh, television viewers? And, and Yeah, no, it's a really interesting question. So like, um, and just to add to Nick's earlier point, it's sort of like, it's the, it's the, the why and the how that actually makes a huge difference in my head about the data as well sort of like you, you usually know what they're doing but why they're doing this and therefore how can you actually interact with them to make their life easier so to answer your your actual question um we have around two and a half million people who come to our race courses throughout the year uh, so an enormous number the the overlap between the various courses actually is relatively small there's um there's a big overlap between grand national and cheltenham festival uh, and then it actually falls off quite quite drastically the way we actually operate, particularly for the big events, is, is a 50 months running program. So our Cheltenham 2024 was kicked off in January 2023, if that makes sense. Um, so we went live the day after festival. Yeah, the day after festival went live. Um, to go live, you have to think about pricing. You have to think about the pricing windows. You have to think about what product you actually want to offer. That happens constantly. And what we're trying to do is engage with as many people as possible throughout each and every of these big festivals to then have their email addresses to um, engage with them on social, 
or, uh, or any other way we, we allow to do um, SMS sometimes to then actually be able to talk to them when things happen. Um, and in my head, uh, a, a, we have a bunch of other events that happen in these big courses. So that usually helps you sort of to, um, to remind everyone that, that, that um, the big festivals are happening. But you're also using sort of things that happen in the sports to re-engage with the customers. And again, that's why I think that the data becomes awfully relevant because you want to make sure you engage correctly. Uh, you, you are being seen to be clearly fully understand the sport, but also understand the angle there they're taking. So to use Nick's early example, um, it would be great to understand why you're actually going to those away games. Is that because you love the sport? Or is this just an occasion to actually visit the US? Um, are you a hardcore fan or just a traveler who, who know, picks, picked up something casually? Uh, and I think that's where the power of data comes back in. Yeah. I mean, just, just to pipe in really quickly there, I think that's one of the things that's so interesting uh, to me looking at the, the jockey club and its audience and its, its, its breadth is, uh, you know, within the, the, the English market in that case is just the, the diversity that it has both as a geographic footprint around the country uh, and then also socioeconomically. So it has this amazing diversity uh, within its audience that I think is extremely unique and really exciting to, 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 uh, to, to look through in these different lenses uh, because there's so many different stories uh, from these different components. And, and um, Tom, just before we come to you and talk about how betting streams are starting to become really, really popular and sort of one of the, one of the bigger, uh, uh, bigger um, development pathways for Spock. Olaf, I, w I wanted to piggyback on what Nick just said and, and kind of ask, how do you look to personalize your engagement with each of those segments? Um, both in terms of the ongoing communication, but also the actual uh, physical event itself and the coverage of the event uh, for the high net worth individuals, for the day outers, for the people who want to rent their, you know, um, tails and top hat from Moss Bros and, you know, come on down and drink all the champagne in the, in, you know, in, in middle England. Um, how do you how do you tailor those uh, those th those engagements with them uh, in order to make it as uh, as personalized as possible? So the, so the ambition is, and it's very much so stressed ambition because I don't think we're there yet. But the ambition is to almost think about the whole customer journey from the second you engage with advertisement, people talk to you about it. The the, the second you then click on our our websites, um, we always make sure that. We look at our various race days and think about what kind of segments would most likely going to come to these days. Make sure that the the, the product, i.e., the race day, is described in a relevant fashion for one or two or three of them. Um, and then, um, as soon as you arrive on on site, we sort of you have, again you have different ways of engaging with the day's racing. You could um, you know spend your day in a hospitality unit uh, all the way through to maybe not seeing a single race and just uh, socializing with your friends. Uh, and there are plenty of those, by the way. It's just perfectly fine. If they're happy, we're happy. Um, so that's what the ambition is, and this is where we are, we are we are rolling out this sort of data insight and personalized setup across all touch points to actually have enough data so we actually change the website and the storytelling based on what we think is most relevant for you. So there could be the all the way from as high level as description of the actual day all the way through to what product we actually rank first. So if you know that you've always bought, bought hospitality, then we should feed you the hospitality first. Um, ideally, at some point, we will do food and beverage through our app as well. So if you know that you always buy a bottle of champagne, the most expensive ticket, uh, we might as well offer you some package that actually reflects this. You know what your preferred race course is, so don't land you on the, on the main website, but land you on your favorite race course website, etc. And I think 
nowadays there's almost like a, a sort of we call it brilliant basics internally something that you have to do to actually allow the customer to engage the product that you want them to engage with will see a massive impact on conversion rates dwell time and, and overall satisfaction we, i'll give you another example so i'm just thinking a lot we, we completely changed our pre-event uh, emails there used to be one size fits all and we've now done it by day by enclosure and told them what you can expect in your part of the race course on that day, what the big event is. And that had a massive impact on our net promoter score because people just knew what to expect. They knew what to look out for. They knew where the toilets were, where the bars are, what the big race is, and so forth. I, I think a great point to make off of what Olaf is saying as well, and it's something that a lot of our clients ask us sometimes, is, is you know, in terms of um, data acquisition and building that trust with the fan. Um, in terms of asking more things, you know, you then, it like increases your responsibility to then deliver something on the information they just provided you. Um, and when you start to get that in a nice back and forth trade, if you will, uh, then that you built a trust. And from there, you, you know, things get better from that point and you can do more. And it's just, I, I think that getting that first step right, and it can be, um, it doesn't have to be super complicated with, you know, an algorithm of 10 if then statements. It can be something like, oh, we see your ticket and, you know, going through, get, you know, being on, you know, turn seven or whatever is a totally different experience than across the course. Uh, and how you engage uh, is, is a great one of an example of like, that's a totally different literal perspective and experience and helping them maximize their their ticket and is is you know in that case is huge value sorry and it's just just to just to add to this i actually even think from a commercial point of view it actually works for upselling and cross-selling if you fundamentally if you make my experience better um i actually happy to pay for that so um there could be two examples so we've had actively people complaining about us up, up until this year not yet offering a merchandising setup that's changed now but they said look i sort of quote unquote, abandoned my kids with a, with a nanny. I want to bring them something to say thank you. And you have nothing to give to me. Or another anecdote is um, older people said, if I'd only known that I can buy a, a, um, a seat um, to use for the, for the time, I would, have, I would have paid you the extra 60 quid. So how do I make sure the right people get the right upsell that actually adds value rather than nuisance? Um, and, and that, again, goes, all goes back to data, whether that's date of birth, whether that's previous purchase behavior and so forth. How, how many people do you have in the in the database who are from the UK and how many are from uh, are, are international and is that is that is that growing how is the percentage changing year on year so it's quite interesting so the horse range particularly jumps so it depends what you what you're referring to jumps is sort of um, a specific taste almost that that actually applies very much to the UK and, and Ireland um, there's a bit around mainland Europe, but it's, it's sort of across the rest of the world, sort of Middle East, uh, Far East, Australia, US is all flat racing. So um, our product is, um, in terms of actually ticket buyers, relatively uh, local, so you sort of uh, UK, Ireland and so forth. Um, and then viewership, we're sort of trying, one of the ways we're trying to do is two ways, actually. We, we have a media partner who, who um, streams um, live out across many, many, many countries, the key events. Um, and then we're trying to do a little bit around social app through our own channels. Um, and that obviously is open for the, for the world. Um, again, it's predominantly is UK based, um, with the big events being more international. And what's, what's driving that, uh, that 
international audience who are watching? Do you, do, do you have any idea of whether it's the legacy of the event and the storyline behind it? Is it uh, a love of horse racing? Is it what's, what's, what's really engaging with them and how are you trying to test that out to see if you can, how important is it to grow an international audience for you? So the international audience, realistically, I think for the time being, we, we're probably tapping into the UK market. There's enough growth to actually position that event there. Um, that doesn't mean there are lots of people sort of, again, when you look at the license plate last week, they're sort of coming from all sorts of places, accents, including myself, come from more than just the UK. Um, on the motivations, I think it's, it's, it's quite similar. And also, actually, to be honest, your, your grandmother probably is a perfect, perfect example. I think it's a, it's a passion for, for the sport. It's handing down traditions, including myself. We sort of everyone has moments when you when you see something in your favorite sports. So I remember watching the Grand National. I remember watching Wimbledon, and you sort of you want to pass this on to your to your kids. You sort of the memories that you make, and I think sports is a very unique way of of creating those those memories, engaging. And then last but not least, um, obviously horse racing is a massive betting product. Uh, U.S. market opening. Lots of other markets are very um, very engaged with the product. Um, so that's that's a core part for our international strategy as well. Tom, how we were we were talking offline um, on another podcast about uh, sort of betting streams uh, and 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 betting specific uh, commentary and analysis uh, becoming more and more um, part of what people are requesting you to do. How are you seeing that development of that uh, that side, especially as a company that offers that in the U.S., where the where the market is opening up? You know, it seems almost every week there's another state that's that's legalized it. And anytime you listen to a podcast that has a gambling partner, you have to listen to more and more states being rolled off with the one eight hundred, you know, stop gambling um, disclaimer. Yeah, I mean, to start off, that a contact of mine is uh, works uh, as their chief legal officer at one of the betting companies here in the U.S. He's got the most thankless job in America by having to keep up to date with all the regulations and all the all the all the um, all the new states that are jumping off. But I mean technology uh cloud-based technology over the last couple of years has really caught up with um with you know satellite distribution and delivery to make the ability to use cloud-based tools uh, such as spark to be able to provide you know alternative commentary for betting fiends or even just just distribute um uh content from overseas into the us um a lot more easier and to be quick enough that um, you don't have to worry about the the latency when it comes to when when it comes to actually uh, people putting the bet down. So it's a hugely growing part of our business. You know, inside here inside the US, we're creating alternative broadcast feeds uh, for specific to betting, or even delivering content into betting providers in the US. Um, and you know, specifically, just sort of talking about someone like like a Cheltenham Festival, or you know, uh, flat races uh, such as here in the US, Kentucky Derby, or Know, the Melbourne Cup in Australia. One thing that I love about these huge horse racing events is they're sort of the original major sporting events that you can really create multiple different broadcast feeds that complement each other and they don't sort of um they they, they don't take audience away from because like what Olaf said, there's three or four very distinct groups of people who go to go to Cheltenham Festival. You know, you've obviously got the gamblers, you've got the fans of horse racing as a sport, and you've got the people who are there for, you know, uh, the, uh, be there for the scenery, for the, for the fashion, for all that. So you can create, you know, on like like what ITB create for for, for you guys there in in, in the UK, all like a, a spec make the spectacle, create a feed that is about the entire the entire festival, not just focusing on the races, but focusing on the um, 
on what's happening off the off the track as well. Uh, and then at the same time, you can create a betting specific feed for a um, that for for the betting audience. And then also, you know, you can have a, a third feed which is just very sort of hardcore nerdy horse racing um, specific feed for the people who are the horse racing fans. It's one of the things that I love about these major horse racing events is is just the sheer amount of content that you can make that is completely um, complementary of um, of each of each other. Mm. And the experience is. Oh, go ahead, Olaf. No, I was going to say just to add to that. When we talk about data, we always think about customer data. The other piece of data that I think is really key for this as well is sort of what I call performance data. So if you think about F one and fundamentally horse racing isn't that dissimilar to F one. Um, the, the amount of data we have about um, the horse's strengths, the, the, the speed, the jumps. If you think about your, your, these horses running up the hill at 30 miles per hour, jumping over significantly um, uh, sized hurdles. I mean, that, that's, a, that's a sports feat. That's sort of a massive achievement to bring that to life. I think Tom just called it the horse racing nerd or the data nerd, whether it's betting or just as the level of the sport. I think there's a huge potential there as well. I a hundred percent. We're we're just talking about with someone else on the on the performance side too, and just you know, in the advances of the technology and the speed of producing the the statistics and et cetera that can then support uh, an increased amount of uh, you know uh, prop betting and those sorts of things. So you know, I think there's going to be more sports are going to be able to do that. F1 is a good example where it's kind of like okay, today I can kind of who's going to win the race during the race. You know, this guy's going to overtake from twelve to nine or those sorts of things, I, I think are, are coming down the pipe and uh, are gonna be uh, extremely impactful. I, I think personally also with, with golf, you can just imagine, you know, this is gonna go rough green, you know, 20 feet out, that kind of stuff. And we're just getting to that whole dawn where the, the you know, back to Tom, a big problem has been the, the latency on that or that, you know, one feet is a half second faster than the next and how you solve those issues and advantages. But those are all kind of we're, we're pretty much there. And the, the, the ubiquity is the wrong word, but sort of the, the proliferation of this data and that storytelling, I think, is one of the reasons that fans have started pivoting more towards following individuals as opposed to necessarily teams because they understand more about how that individual is more unique or, or, or different than, um, uh, than, than another one, right, which is a, which is a fascinating transition. Um, there are some outliers where like a team, a, a, you know, the performance of a team is so incredible and so, um, uh, so different that you can, you can sort of fall in love with that. But more and more people are gravitating towards the, oh, have you seen what this individual can do compared to, compared to everybody else? So we're entering a brand new era of, uh, of uh, sports following. And as you said, a brand new era of, of you know, people being able to then um, bet on different kinds of things because they have uh, uh, they, they feel like they have more certainty about the outcome of, of what they're doing. So to that to, to that effect, um, Olaf, how how are you um, thinking about um, telling those stories and engaging uh, with the stories of the individual horses or the individual jockeys? Because obviously things shift so much in horse racing compared necessarily to other. Uh, to other sports, what are the realities for you around that? Yeah, it's a great, great segue. I actually, it's almost to add to just to expand on your introduction. There, I, I actually think humans do two things. Um, they love um, sort of associating with something that creates a community, and that's where the clubs come in, the nations, etc. 
And then they love personal interest stories. And that's when exactly, as you said, Yanni, sort of like, oh my God, have you seen this? Can you imagine that? Even if it's good, bad, or even just sometimes sort of laughing at other people's expenses, even that's not very kind. Um, I think that's the two things. Horse racing is interesting because we don't really have that much of the former. So the tribalism mm. of the football club or NFL club actually doesn't exist in horse racing as much. There are different attempts of getting there. We, however, we have a wonderful example of probably the only true professional sport where you compete men and women exactly the same sporting event. So, and not, not referring to sort of tennis, for example, where you have um, US Open uh, men and female, but you have the same exact tennis match, in this case, the same exact race where, where all genders can compete. Uh, and um, and often, more often than not, or very frequently, particularly recently, it's the females who are, who are actually winning. So, uh, uh, Rachel Blackburn obviously comes to mind immediately. Um, what we're trying to do is sort of engage with these people to actually really make them sports stars and bring that to life and actually create those human interest stories. Um, give our platforms to them. So a lot of our advertisement features uh, what I would always call two-legged and four-legged stars. Um, a lot of our social content engages with the horse and with the, with the, with the jockeys. Um, ITV coverage talks about the owners, talks about the trainers, um, and really brings those stories to life. And I think everyone who's seen many of these BT Sport and it's by the world, BT Sport or Netflix um, um, documentaries and how well they're doing is all about being able to actually um, associate yourself with one of those people where there's a positive, almost, well, it doesn't matter whether it's a positive or negative association. You just want to create that additional interest, understanding what's going on, uh, open the doors, open the hood of the car and understanding what's actually going on behind that behind the scenes. Yeah, and doing that all up, especially in utilizing a platform like like Cheltenham, uh, which is one of one of the most watched sporting events in the UK, to drive those those stories and learn more about you know, the jockeys, the, uh, the the the, the four legged athletes, and the, the trainers and the stables. It that you know gives you guys a great platform to then get people not only watching horse racing, uh, jump racing during Cheltenham, but get them to follow all year round and and you know, then go out to the events. Uh, watch, watch, watch more of the events week in, week out at home for the ones that they can't reach too. So it's it's great to be able to use that platform to be able to to to, to drive the, the rest of the jockey clubs events forward. Mm. And I'm pleased you mentioned that, Tom, because it's it, it's something happened recently here in the UK that's 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 sort of relevant to this, right? And 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 which I'd love your view on, and and Olaf yours as well. There was there was a, a match of the day. Uh, um, match of the day being an institution since the 1960s, doing the highlights of the Premier League every um, uh, uh, every Saturday and Sunday, um, which featured no commentators, no pundits, no analysts, because uh, Gary Lineker got into a spat with the BBC, um, and all of the commentators and all of the uh, uh, all of the pundits sided with Gary Lineker, and because he was not allowed to present Match of the Day, refused to come on and uh, and and didn't participate. And it got me thinking about how the the the, the commentators and the, they're sort of the gatekeepers of the engagement with the sport on the broadcast, right? They're the ones who narrate the story. They're the ones who tell the story. Um, on, a, on a previous podcast with, with one of the Spot co-founders, I mentioned that how, for me, the 1996-98 Bulls were synonymous with Georges Eddy, the, the, the French-American commentator for uh, Canal Plus on the NBA. You know, it's, it's just like, it's just locked in my mind as a kid growing up in Luxembourg. I cannot disassociate the two, and it's, 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 it's incredible. Um, so in terms of um, then having those gatekeepers 
be able to be more relevant to each of those individual audiences. Um, how 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 can you do that without um, uh, without separating out too much and still having that authenticity and that uh, you know kind of I don't want to call it a paternal figure, but somebody who's who sort of is that uh, symbolic representative of the of the sport, Tom. I don't know if I just rambled and waffled way too much there, but it's all good. Well, I mean, the the commentator is the person metaphorically sitting next to you on the couch, uh, who is the expert in the room that's telling you what's happening, that you're agreeing with, you're not agreeing with, that you're having sort of this internal conversation with. They're updating you on what's going on, and so when you look at something like the other week with uh, with match of the day. Um, you, you, you could just tell straight away it was a good reminder for the industry of how important commentary is as an art form because really it is an art form um, to be able to, to add context to be able to drive the story drive drive the narration um, and to, to get into that any uh, further to be able to have an expert that can speak someone's language speak someone's dialect is from where someone is from just really, you know, adds like another level to that. So to be able to to drive audience deeper in deeper engaged and further engaged in the story, like 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 your story around the um, around the commentary and during um, during the '96 to, to '98 Bulls, to be able to have that commentator in your language would have felt like he was in the room with you, telling you what's going on. That that's what drives fandom. That's what gets people involved. That's what gets people stuck. Just to jump in there, because I think it's such an interesting thing. It's one of the things I've always loved. The first time I heard the Spock pitch, you know, was four or five years ago. Um, and then, you know, to take it to, you know, at the super high level, I think one thing that gets interesting, it's been a lot of talk in, you know, uh, in some of the states, is just the negotiations of some of the big contracts, as we've had a lot on, on our side of the pond in the NFL, a, a, you know, the premier uh negotiation contracts for our personalities like Troy Aikman or Joe Buck, you know, and they're commanding, you know, uh, 60 to $90 million on these contracts. And you're like, you know, okay, that's starting to show the value of just the voice, the narration, the branding and, and the, the theater of it. And that, it, you know, the MC does matter uh, in a lot of these places. And it is, a you know, I think continually part of this that, you know, um, when you're, when you're creating, you know the drama and the narratives uh it, it's really important these people become synonymous uh, many times with the sport i mean we can all probably rattle off three or four people that are just you know uh can can you imagine uh you know the masters without jim nance reporting on the states is it, it's it's uh you know or you could talk about uh you know john madden and and his associate association over you know the 30 years obviously so it's like these sorts of things, I think, um, and obviously every country has their, their different ones, but um, I think what it ultimately is showing is the value of narration and like almost a leader in setting the drama uh, and setting the stage. It's almost like the chorus, if you will, of a, of a Greek play or something. It's, it's, it's you're, you're, throw, you're throwing that right, 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 right in my heart, Nick. Thank you. That's throw perfect. out there for you, Yanni. <laughs> Just to add to that, almost like Nick mentioned the Masters, I think a relevant locally but also that little sort of bring it actually to life, what these people do. I always remember that one of the first broadcasts of the Masters, there was a there was a reporter who dropped the ball on a green and sort of felt like two yards apart from each other. One ball stuck there, was amazing, relatively easy birdie, but the next was 15 yards that way. The other one was 20 yards that way. The third one went off the green. And it makes you realize what we think is pretty good golf shot actually is an amazing golf shot because it's probably five yards 
where they have to place it. And that sort of makes you realize how that, how every sport in these people you think are pretty good. They're not pretty good. They're bloody amazing. Um, and I think that creates excitement and has nothing to do with your, with your golf course you play on the weekend where anything halfway decent ends up on the green, um, <laughs> as an example. Uh, the less the less said about my golf game, the better. To be perfectly honest with you, so um, that that's a that's a perfect segue to the way that we close um, our podcast uh, every time, uh, which is to ask, what was your favorite sports moment of the past week? And and Olaf, well, none of you are allowed to select Cheltenham because we've been talking about it, but we will we will sort of put a pin in it and say that other than Cheltenham, which was clearly all of our favorite uh, favorite sport event of the past of the past um, week or so. Uh, what was it? Nick, we'll go with you first. Okay. Um, well, I'll, I'll preface this with, uh, you know, uh, I mean, it's to me, it's baseball. Um, and uh, I, I just put a little personal spin on this. I was a longtime player and uh, uh, was a passionate baseball fan, but have not been for about 15 years, you know, and probably, you know, have gone from someone who could name every player and all of their statistics to, Maybe I've got like 10, but this week, World Baseball Classic uh, and Otani uh, striking out Trout was perhaps the most exciting baseball moment I've seen since I was personally watched Nolan Ryan strike out the, the 5,000 strikeout. Um, and uh, I think this is a huge story. Uh, I don't know how it's big here. I don't know how big it's gotten internationally. But just to put some numbers on this. It's worth, it's worth telling the story for the audience. Yeah. So Shotei Otani, yeah, tell, so, tell the story. Nick. So just from this, Shotei Otani and, and Mike Trout are teammates for the Angels. Um, and so the World Baseball Classic had pitted uh, the Japanese team versus the U.S. Uh, and it so happened that they get matched up where Otani is pitching against Trout and strikes him out. Uh, and this is a huge moment. And just, yeah. to, just to put numbers data guy so let's put numbers to the word huge okay japan is you know about 125 million people okay from what i've been able to find uh estimated 65 million people in japan watched this uh event uh on the u.s side from what i've seen from the tv numbers it was closer to 7 million but i don't I, you know i'm i don't know if all the ratings or whatever have come in uh but just let's just take that on that let's just take a pause and just say what that's meaning for the internationalization of baseball, you know, towards Japan. Also, uh, Mexico did a great job in some of the Latin America. Uh, and I think this is a huge thing in, in, in the sport. I think ba everyone involved in Major League Baseball, this is this event is something they've been working on for 20 years. And it's not like shortening the game. It was just expanding the game to places where baseball was already strong, like Japan, like Latin America. So I think there's a great story here in, in leaning into what you do and making this an amazing success. And I think one that is going to continue to get better. I think the fact of Japan's success is very healthy for the sport. Um, and I think, you know, I think Otani as an athlete right now has to be kind of, there, there has to be a moment. I can make a good argument that he might be the greatest, most impactful athlete of any sport right now in terms of his potential dominance. Because I, I, for those that don't know baseball, the fact he's pitching and hitting at the level that he is, is yeah. the only one is Babe Ruth that has ever kind of been good, that good at both, and arguably Otani's better. Um, and this is just an amazing thing to see. So it's, it's I, you know, I won't, I won't go on, and I won't try to be respectful for everybody else, but 
Well, he's he's about he's about to get paid twice yeah. as a uh, his, yeah. his next contract's going to be uh going to be going to be interesting. What, what ten five hundred is what it looks like it could be. Yeah, going going deep on the favorite sports moment of the uh, of the week. I love it. I love it. Um, Tom, you were nodding. You were nodding very, very vigorously. So I don't know whether Nick stole your uh, stole your favorite moment. Nick did steal mine. That last at bat was just one of the best moments I've watched in a long time. But uh, if I have to pick one, I'll pick round one of the Australian Football League started this week, and the mighty Melbourne Demons Football Club, uh, who uh, favourites to win this year. Hopefully they do. Uh, picked up a fifty point win. So that, I'll, I'll I'll go with that uh, in 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 exchange for the Otani Trout. Last that bat. Go demons. Olaf, what you got? All right, here we go. I'm going to go way different since I'm not allowed to talk about Honeysuckle and Rachel Blackmore winning uh, on their farewell journey, making 60,000 people cry at Cheltenham with tears of joy. I'm going to go completely different. I watched my little girl shooting her first goal on Saturday morning, and I think it's very special because yes. Yes. Um, <laughs> this is where it all starts. She's never going to be a professional sports person, I think. Maybe she proves me wrong, but... This is where it starts and sort of passion starts with getting the kids into sports and away from those, I think sometimes not particularly good machines and into stuff that actually makes the, the hearts, getting hearts racing, not, not always on horse racing, but racing in many ways. Um, so yeah, that's mine. Fantastic. Congratulations to her. And you know, even, even the, yeah. uh, even the farewell tour couldn't possibly match, match that one. It's, uh, I can't, I can't nah. see how it could. Excellent. Well, thank you all very much for taking the time to, uh, to chat to us today. Really, uh, really appreciate it. Um, once again, for everybody listening, if you like what you hear, make sure to subscribe and like wherever you get your podcasts. Go to our website, sportsloft.co, and sign up to our newsletter. And make sure that you follow us on socials at SportsLoftHQ. All that remains for me is to say a big thank you to our guests uh, for joining us and for sharing their insights. Thank you very much to Tom for joining us on the, po- on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Nick. Great to have you on again. Thank you, Yanni. Great to meet you, everyone. And uh, Olaf, I, uh, I very much hope this is not the last. Uh, it is the first time, but I very much hope not the last. Thank you very much for being on the podcast. Uh, thank you. I really, really enjoyed it. Great show. Thank you. Excellent. Well, for everybody else, thank you very much for joining us in the Sports Loft, and we'll see you next time. Goodbye. Goodbye.